Greetings and welcome to the worship services of Alamo First Baptist Church. I'm Brother Chris Rigby. I'm standing here this morning in front of our bell. This is the original bell that was at our old location uh, years ago. It uh, was there when the church was first built and it was always a call to worship. Well, when we moved to our new campus here several years ago, we brought it with us. And not too long ago, we got to put it up. We're so excited about it because it reminds us that we're coming together into this building to worship. And we are excited that today you've decided to tune in to our broadcast to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our prayer this morning is that you will see the great love that Jesus has for you and the great love that we have for you as well this morning as we worship together. We look forward to meeting you and your family and we invite you to be a part of any of our worship services, our activities or ministries here. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, probably the best way to do that is just drop us a line at our email address, alamofirstbaptist at gmail.com. All of it spelled out, just gmail.com, alamofirstbaptist. We look forward this morning to worshiping with you. We pray God's blessings upon you and your family as we go inside now and we worship together. Let's go ring that bell for Jesus.
understand that the firm foundation in life is the Word of God. The transcendent powers were powers that were to remind the people of the transcendency of God's beauty, of God's holiness, God's glory, of the story-telling statutes and the story of Mosaic and the story of stained glass windows all were vividly seen and would be telling the, the gracious acts of God's love and His uh, pursuit of us. You might, for example, see a scene of the, the story of Noah and the ark and how God uh, rescued and saved Noah and his family. You might see the, uh, the beginning there in the Garden of Eden. Uh, you might see the, the passion of Christ played out in his heart throughout the building itself. All of this was designed to help ordinary folks discern, delight in, and declare the great truth of the Bible. And many of the churches themselves were actually built in a cross pattern. If you were to look at it from above an aerial drone view, you would say, well, that looks just like a cross. Been laid out. Jimmy Davis, who wrote a little bit about this in his book, uh, The Cruciform Life, said this here in the 21st century, we need more cruciform churches. Not lavish cathedrals, he says, but living communities of disciples being shaped by the cross, being shaped into the form of the cross for the glory of God, and he says, for the good of our world. My prayer for this series that we're going to begin today on the cross-shaped life is that we'll take a look at what I believe is God's desire for us to have a architect over our life, that being God, that being Christ, that being the Holy Spirit, and being that clay that He can mold, that He will mold us and make us into the very image of His Son, that when people look at us, they see the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. They see cross bearers, those that bear the name of Christ. I thought about it, I prayed about it, and it struck me. The great failing of the church and believers today is thinking that Calvary is some event that happened 2,000 years ago. The truth is, Calvary is to be an everyday happening across our world, it's to be played out in each of our lives, each and every day. I hope that thought sits in the heart and in your mind for just a moment. How do you look at Calvary? Something that happened 2,000 years ago, or is it something still happening right now in our world today? We listen to the teachings of Christ. He said that, that we are to be daily crucified. In our series, I want us to think about uh, a few things together. I want to give that list to you so you know where we're at and where we're going. This morning, we're going to refocus on the central truth of our life, and that's why I had you open up to we'll read in just a moment, Galatians 2 and verse 20. But I want us to refocus on the central truth of our life, one truth. Uh, I did a series last year where we were in shutdown mode for most all of that, and all the time on what is truth. I'm not going to re-preach those particular messages, but I'll 
said, you can go back and listen to a lot of uh, that series uh, easily. But I do want this morning to think about the simple truth of your life. As it, as it applies to Galatians uh, 2.20, being essential in the series passage. We're going to talk about reaching the lost, what that means. Refreshing our soul. Renewing the Holy Spirit. Reproving our sin. Revitalizing the family. Reclaiming our children. And I'm looking forward to that message in particular because that, in part, is where my heart is at in this whole series in, in, in a large measure. And I think as Christians, we've been guilty of handing our children to the world and saying, okay, raise our kids, raise our grandkids. You, you be the major influencer in their life. And I don't think we've done it intentionally. I just think we've done it out of, madness, out of a matter of simply convenience. You know, we'd rather let you know, our kids are hollering just because they want to be on the, the iPad or the phone or whatever, the computer, watching YouTube and, you know, along with their just doing their thing. That's fine. But the problem is the world is influencing our children. And we're starting to see now what that influence means. Reclaiming our children, respecting our freedom. We talk a lot today about religious freedom. Well, what does that really mean? As it should be played out as a cross-shaped believer. Reviving the church. Reforming the world. We hear a lot of talk about this world needs to be reshaped, reformed, remade. Well, what does that mean from a Christian perspective, from the Bible? And then finally, rewarding the faithful. And I'm going to go ahead and give you in that title and just an explanation about this whole series. We read in the Word of God that, you know, perhaps one day we're going to be standing as believers, as children of God before the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, we may hear what? Well done, my good and faithful servant. And that's kind of a warm and encouraging statement, isn't it? And I don't know about you, I, I just have always made the assumption, well, hopefully I get to hear a little of that. A, a little bit of my life will have been well done, and, and Christ will say that. But when I begin to look at, particularly what we're looking at this morning, the simple truth of our, our life and what it ought to be and how it ought to be played out. I'm not so sure that Chris Brickley will hear. Well, I might be a little bit more worried now that Chris might hear the words of what he needs from me. I've never really been here. This is where the series is going. So I'm asking this morning, what is the simple truth of your life? Each morning when you get up, each day when the sunrise hits your face, what is the central truth of your life that you're going to live by? All right, well, with that in mind, let's think about Galatians 2, verse 20. And I think that's a great place for us to start. It is a perfect life passage for us to have. Listen to what Paul says to the Galatians. He says to them, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, uh, live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Ask the question, 
this convert to your heart. And then six, you need to be saved from your sins. This need to be saved from your sins. Do you need to be saved from your sins? And that's a strange question for a church today. Well, it's not so strange when you begin to think about the new religious thought, the new religious movement that seems to be growing and going, particularly here in the West today, among what we would call evangelical Christians. We're going to toss around a phrase we'll hear used quite a bit today, the social justice gospel movement, the social justice good news. We hear a lot of that being talked about, particularly in evangelical circles. Let me just say at the root of this religious thought, at the root of this religious reasoning today, we find, I believe, some very troubling issues. You say, well, what are those? For example, the the deity of Christ is denied. Jesus is looked upon in a favorable light, of course, but he's seen as a good teacher. He is seen as a as, as a good man. He is, he is seen as uh, a, a moral figure, but he's not seen as the Son of God, and he's certainly not seen as the Creator who is God. I've said to you before, there's only four possible explanations of who Christ is. He's a liar, or he was a lunatic, or he was a legend. He's not God. He's not the Son of God. He is not divine. Then either he was true, and he was a lunatic going around saying crazy things that should be listening to. Or he was a flat-out liar trying to deceive people to get people to follow him in a false belief. Or he's just some legend he's, he's made up or someone's written about. But I don't think you, friends, and I, I understand when I read the Bible and I see But this social justice gospel today is taking Christ off the throne and just kind of putting him on the same level as Gandhi uh, or some other moral figure in humanity. Another thing that the social justice gospel movement does today that we're going to be talking about if you think about the central truth of our life is that it, it, it removes the severity and the problem of our sin is dismissed. In other words, yeah, we may not be perfect people, but, you know, we're all on this road together, and we're all going to find our way one day to eternity and, and live in a better place. The sin problem is dismissed. The, 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 the severity, the penalty of our sin has been dismissed. And third, and this is to be one of the, the bigger things that we can clearly see, is that the inherent sin, the trust of the Bible, is questioned. And it's, it, it's a book that's pretty good story. Some of it doesn't make sense, and we can kind of cherry pick what we want out of it, but uh, most of it, you know, could probably be left alone today because either... This is the full 
revelation to your friend like a little kid. I thought that there was a great number of young people to which this movement has appealed, has become very appealing to our young, our young children, our, 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 our college students, and young adults. One reason it's so appealing is that it allows for people today, it allows for folks to take these topic debated topics. A lot of what we talked about last year in that truth series. A lot of these hotly debated topics, and we can put them in a box, and we can say, well, okay, that lifestyle's all right, there's nothing wrong with it. It, it, can, be, it can be explained and understood in our own human reason. Another thing is that the makeup of our young people today, by and large, they truly do care about many of the social ills of society. I have to say that for our young people. They really have looked around and said, you know, our world is in trouble and something needs to be done. They believe Christ followers should be concerned with the poor, the care of creation, and other political, socioeconomic, and economic issues. Young people today say the Bible is a book that's calling people to feed the poor, to clothe the naked, to shelter the homeless, to seek justice. Listen, in the public squares and in the marketplace of our world. Now, some of that sounds really good. A lot of that sounds really right. And that is true. However, the social gospel movement has some real problems with it. Just like our generation. You know, my generation, those that are, are uh, in that generation and, and below it, you know, we, we kind of went through that period of what we would call the, the feel-good prosperity gospel. You know, where you just love God, you praise God, and He'll bless you. And it's all about the blessing you'll get from God. And so for, for a long time, it's been the prosperity gospel. And you can, you can turn on the TV and you still today see prosperity preachers that tell you how you can get that next home. How you can get that next car. How you can get ahead in life if you just, you know, uh, do this in the Bible, read that in the Bible, and of course send a check to their church. But our young people have said, you know, that doesn't work for me. Our younger generation today is saying, no, something's still wrong with me. And now today they're looking for a make me feel good about myself gospel. One in which I can look at my friends that I, that I, have gone to school with and might be living a standard outside the Word of God and say, you know, you and I aren't all that much different and we're, we're good together and I feel good about loving you and just loving life and, 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 and being tolerant of, of, of all life's choices. At the very heart, Satan is trying to dismiss and deny that we need Christ as our Lord and Savior. His new age religion, again, was just dressed up the personal, the priority of personal value rather than the powerful, purified victory of Calvary. What I'm saying this morning, and I hope you hear this, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. Our faith, our life, our truth begins at the foot of the cross. In what Christ did there, who he was, and why he died, and what he accomplished. Did you know that after Calvary, that I think. It's my belief that Satan had to change his approach. He 
instead of a full-on assault on onslaught or attack against Christ, which fails, you know, Satan thought he had won again. I mean, there, there, there was a roar of hell when Christ cried out of his finish and gave up the spirit. Satan thought he had won. But we said it last week, what? Sunday was coming. Christ didn't stay in his grave. He rose up. Oh, but Satan didn't understand that he had won. He had lost. But he. So how did he defeat Christ now? How did he defeat his church? The onslaught, the frontal attack doesn't work. Maybe I can go back to that old way of doing things that I did way back in the garden. I can alter the message just a little bit. I believe Satan's desire is to get people to miss the entire point of who Christ is. Right thing. It's, it's really not a new approach. It's just the same old thing that happened to Adam and Eve. You can be your own God. You can decide what's true or not true. And the social justice gospel movement believes that truth is subjective. That you can kind of decide for yourself what scripture is saying and what, what is really right or not. And, and it all works out. Now, one reason I feel so led to, to, to preach this message is because of the threat that the social justice gospel movement is having not only in the evangelical faith, but even within our own denomination and many of our own sister churches. It truly threatens to split us right down the middle today. It is a battle that's being waged within the Southern Baptist Convention. Sides are being chosen. On one side, we have evangelicals who say, well, if you're truly compassionate, and a truly compassionate Christian, then you have to be concerned about the social justice issues and, and ills of the world today. On the other side, you have evangelicals who, who are being called insensitive, uh, but are saying, you know what, we don't have to care at all about the social ills of our day and in society. That, that should concern us. What are the main social issues today? What are the ills today? Well, we know what they are. Issues of racial inequality, gender inequality, racial privilege, strong desire to overthrow the outdated existing social and economic power construct. Those are the things that we hear in the news and read in the paper that we keep seeing coming up over and over and over and over again. I want to make something really clear this morning as we talk about this. I'm not saying that one side or the other has. Everything is totally wrong. But I am saying that there's some wrong in both groups. And, you know, the way Satan operates. He likes to take a truth and he'll sprinkle in a few lies, but he likes to mix enough truth and lies together to get you all mixed up and messed up and all misery-centered, all targeted in your relationship and in your walk with Christ. And I think that's happening. There are some 
issues today that we need to address. And let me say, there are issues today in Southern Baptist we have failed to be front and center on. And we should not be surprised that the world has stepped up and said, all right, we're going to say something about it. We're going to do something about these issues. We're going to be a leading voice on it. We've been quiet. We've been targeted. And now that the wagon, so to speak, or the train is headed in the wrong direction with it, we're showing up a little bit late to the party. And we should have been spiritual leaders on those things. Walk together. But let me also say that some of those things that, that need to be addressed, that need to be talked about, are headed in the wrong direction because they're leading people away from the cross and away from Jesus. My hope is that what's happening with what Ed Spencer said in 2015 in a few research reports, American Christianity is that is it collapsing but it's being clarified. That's my prayer. That there's a new awakening, a spiritual awakening happening today among our young people. But at the same time, we have to be cautious and we have to be careful. We have to be in the know of what God says and what's going on in the world. No doubt there needs to be a moving away from what has been true about Christianity and the church. In the past, I mean, let's face it, for most people, we saw God as what? Some kind of heavenly Santa Claus that sat up there and gave out his blessings to those who were good little children. God is not our heavenly Santa Claus. But God is also not just some moral idea or thought. He is the other part of being. Is the of the Lord. But I believe the Holy Spirit is calling us to see that there's a new focus on the true gospel of Christ and the gospel that's true in how it's lived out in this world. Galatians 2 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved us and gave himself for us. Now, two points this morning. I promise you this, the points are a lot shorter than the introduction. Because this is actually a good course to make a life for us. Point number one Paul says, Here's our identity in Christ. What's your identity with Christ? Two things. One, Christ died for you. Christ died for us. Jesus died as our substitute. Think about it for a moment. What does that mean? If Christ had not died for our sins, then we would have had to die for our sins. Someone was going to die for sin. Someone will die for sin, for your sins. The question is who? Will it be Christ or will it be you? Will you allow his death to be for your sins? If you will not, then you must die. For your sins. Someone's going to have to pay the penalty. You say, why? Because the holiness of God demands every sin be judged. That's the message of the Bible. That's the message of the Old Testament. I know we don't like the Old Testament. It's, it's a weird, crazy, funky book. I mean, heck, 
go through numbers in Leviticus. I don't know about you, but I'm doing read Bible things over here. I'm like, here we go again. Numbers in Leviticus. Man, this tells Jesus. But you know what I find out in those, in those uh, old ancient books? God's holy. God's holy the way the church doesn't want to be seen. In the Old Testament, he's unquestionably holy. Let's face it, we're New Testament believers. We're, we're not only New Testament believers, we're, we're, we're believers in the, you know, the, the, the 2000 now. God is our presence. He's our hope. You know? We can sway in the breeze with God in the hope. Reverence is sort of cut out, you know, like out of the old. And but I feel real good about, you know, God will post every single detail. That's the bad news. The good news is the cross, though. Jesus took our place. Isaiah 53, verse 8. All we like sheep and gold afraid. We turn every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ died for us. But listen to this. Our identity in Christ is not only that Christ died. For us, but we die with him, crucified with Christ. Dr. Rogers put it this way. He said, he's done three things for us. He's given, we have an, an executed life, we have an exchanged life, and we have an energized life. We die with Christ. Listen, when Jesus died 2,000 years ago, if you're a child of God, you died that day with him. When he breathed his last, you breathed your last. You were put to death. The you that's you live no more. But when Christ came out of the grave, you came out of the grave with him. But it wasn't you, it was him. Because of that exchange, because of that substitution, Christ took your place, and now Christ takes your place in living in this world. It was an exchange life, and because Christ is alive, we have an energized life. The life that we now live, we have to live for the full, complete glory of God because of the one who lived in us, the one who lives through us. We died with him. That's our identity. The central truth of our life is we have been about Christ. The second part of that is our indwelling by Christ. And the life that I, I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who loved me and gave himself for me. We still live the life in the flesh. With all its lusts, with all its carnalities, with all its failures, with all its uh, struggles, we still live it, but it's not I who lives it. It's not we who lives it. It's Christ in us who lives it. What we can't do, he can, he can do. You can almost see Paul being if he takes Peter by the arm and begins to explain this to Peter. You know, Peter has a problem with it. He said, don't you see, Peter, it's no longer the law, it's the Lord. Did you die for Jesus? Peter says, well, of course not. He died for you to take care of your past. That's the past tense of salvation. Do you live for, uh, for Jesus too? Well, no. Of course not. No. He now lives in you to take care of the present tense of your salvation. In other words, when Jesus died and rose again, he accomplished two things that we need for him to do. Well, what are those two things? One, Christ died to save us from our sins. And secondly, Christ lives to save us from ourselves. He died on the cross to save us from our sins. When Christ died on the cross for our sins, we were crucified with him. 
He was crucified for us. Judicially, before the eyes of God the Father, we were declared righteous, holy, without sin, because Christ died for us. He paid the price. One writer said it this way, he gives the order to the death. One is placed first by being last. That's the life of Jesus. We're saved by grace and grace alone. Dear friend, there's no amount of good work that you and I can do that can ever make us feel good about ourselves and our sinful condition. When we stand according to this work, listen, we don't stand according to the works of our life compared to other people in the world. We stand compared to the holiness of God. And when we choose to stand on our own good work for our, our, our salvation, God says, that's an offense to me. God says, that, 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 that is a labor to me. I, I will nothing more than to cast you from my presence. So either we stand by His grace or we don't stand at all. Christ died to save us from our sins, but secondly, Christ lived to save us from ourselves. The law has nothing to do with it. The law that came to the end of Calvary, the whole system of ritual cleanliness and circumcision, eating and drinking and, and, and living this purified sort of walk came to the end because now Christ lives in us. He is greater than the law. Christ's act of grace combined with our act of faith now brings complete salvation, not just in the past tense with our sins, but also in the future tense of our sanctification. How do we activate, activate Christ? By our faith. By what we call cruciform living. Being people of the cross. Galatians 2.4. I like that. What one writer said, he said, you know, God's word, powerfully, has worked mightily through cruciform people. In fact, He's used crucible people to renew whole countries. That happened in the 18th century there in Britain, where God raised up a, general, uh, a generation of, uh, of vigilant early Methodist evangelists like Tom uh, Harris, uh, George Whitfield, Charles and John Wesley. What did they do? They embraced cruciformity or the cruciform life. That is, they became hungry to be people of the cross. You read through the book of James, the letter of James, and James says that I, you're not saved by faith and works, but where there is faith, there is what? Works. There's a faith that works. My whole point to you this morning is this. We need to look like people of the cross. And, and when I take an honest appraisal of the church here in the West, The way that the church can be Several of the writers that I've been reading this week have been talking about the difference between those in the East and those of the West. We're the West, Western Christians. You see, those in the East don't really have a choice of whether or not they're going to live fully for Christ or not, because the question is are you going to live or not? Read the story of three pastors in China. 
They were taken from those families. They were put in a Chinese re-education concentration camp and living there. Every day they're four months. Not just over 30 years. Would you deny Christ? And every day they said, no, we will not. And for 30 years they've not seen their family. They've been put right back into the, the, the prison uh, cell again. Treated off. Did you do that? Christians? Read another account of a group of Christians living in the Middle East in a Muslim country. They formed a church. They were meeting in secrecy. They were meeting outside the town and and on the outskirts of town in an old cemetery, uh, basically a shed. And they've got a place together to, 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 to get some up and go and work it. And they got stopped outside town by a group of Muslim extremists. Each one was led individually off the bus. They were asked the question, are you a Christian? That first individual had enough courage to say, Yes. And then to his shock and their surprise, he was asked the second question. Would you renounce Christ? To which he answered, No. And he was shocked and One by one, they were all pulled off that bus and asked the same question. And the next question. And each one was shocked because they would not renounce Christ. The author writing the story said, I thought about it. He said, Think about this for a moment. They fully expected to that first question to be shocked. But to be surprised by a second question, to be given a second chance to save your own life. And then think about this that 20th person that was on the bus, he had already seen what had happened to the others before. If, if anyone had an excuse to say something different, just to say something to save their own skin, Certainly it was him. He knew what was coming, but yet to a person, to a man, woman, boy, and girl on that bus that day, no one did not Christ. Let me ask you, are you that kind of Christian? When you put that kind of Christian up against me or, or your life, and you think about the words being told by Christ, well done, good, faithful servant, do you stand in that same kind of category? That God is actually going to say to you, well done, my faithful son. Let me close. Let me read some of this. Some of this may be, I cut a lot of it out, but I think this is so powerful. Matthew Arthur wrote a book called Church of Calvary, a wake-up call to, to faithful Christians to the church in the West. Chapter 1 is entitled, Christians Not Worthy of Killing. I just call it Sports Courage. But the hypothetical story, I want to read a part of it as we close this morning because it's so powerful. Here's what he says. There are still some Christians in the country that worry that neither force may one day arrive on our shores armed with guns and knives and bombs to crush our Christian way of life and destroy the American church. The worry that Christendom will come under brutal assault by these hypothetical savages and that they will find clinging, fearful Christian stupid Bibles dragged into the town square and headed in front of the crowd of cheering bloodthirsty people. They worry that, that we believers in the West may finally suffer persecution like those in the East have faced for some 2,000 years. Locke says, we flatter ourselves. Let us imagine, he says, that this evil horde does show up one day, swords in hand, 
read of God ready to utter some friction. Consider their confusion, though, upon landing here. Look about. They expect to see ample evidence of Christianity in this Christian nation. But instead, they stumble upon a very strange sort of paganism. They do not find any clear indication that the people of this Christian land worship the Christian God. They see instead the worship of actors or politicians and athletes and imaginary figures on television. They discover, too, that the worship of things and objects like electronic gadgets and cars and houses. Most of all, it would seem that the people of this Christian land worship the great and magnificent God who's called self. This is all very confusing to our hearing. They had pictured an American field of pious, modest, prayerful believers. But instead, they have found silly, shallow, oversexed, nihilistic zombies who live very carefully through their phones, which is stopped surprising with, surprising with photos of their own faces. They find that modesty is not discipline, is foreign, obedience is rejected on principle. They find materialism, hedonism, secularism, about atheism, and even all about atheism. The only thing that's troubling is they can't find Christianity. As our heathens began to conduct a closer investigation, they discovered that the nuclear family is in disarray here in this Christian country. Fewer than half of our children live with both, uh, to live, uh, uh, do not live with both biological parents in their homes. Divorce is commonplace and unquestioned. Sometimes the dilution of marriage is celebrated with divorce rights. How odd is this? Is for a Christian country, the Hebrews know, considering that the very Christian Lord and Savior they confess expressly forbid divorce. They know that all manner of sexual perversion is accepted in Brazilians. Homosexuals, far from being called purity or encouraged, well, they marry each other. Rowdy parades are held across the country to applause non-typical family relationships. Perversion is promoted, advertised everywhere. The Hebrews see that some of the men here in this Christian country dress in skirts and pretend to be women, and everyone plays along with the charade. They see drag queens uh, that have story hours in libraries for children, and they see cross-dressing children encouraged to model on television and do many other forms of debauchery that not just tolerate it, but unfortunately celebrate it. As the Hebrews walk around confused and little things, they see a nondescript office building with the words Planned Parenthood written on the side. They walk the story down the hall. They find a man in a lab coat extracting a child from his mother's uh, birth canal one piece at a time. They soon learn that such procedures are carried out hundreds of times a day in this so-called Christian nation. Over 60 million human babies have been dismembered and discarded legally and with enthusiasm. Or is that apathetic appreciation? One can even say, well, even we don't kill babies. They're perplexed. They're supposed to be 240 million Christians within America's borders. Where did they go? Did they float up into space? Did they fall into the ocean and drown? The would-be persecutors stopped the pedestrian and inquired to the whereabouts, where do you find these elusive Christian preachers? We point them down, uh, he points them down the road to something described as a church. Yes, they say. Well, we have finally found them. We will descend upon these uh, Christians and we will crush them. But they are profoundly confused as they approach this alleged house of worship. From the outside, it looks like a post office or a medical branch. 
and thought thoughts or even religious symbols and a symbol inside you. And the name on the sound says something like this around me, which is what you can do. It seems more like a half, it seems less like a half worship, more like a real symbol, which is what we have up here. The would-be persecutors wander inside, and they find a bunch of people sitting around in casual clothing, sipping Starbucks, listening to a mediocre rock band perform pop art. Somebody's demonstrating, and nobody's demonstrating anything approaching reverence. There's no sign that anything sacred is happening here, or that anyone really believes it is. Then out on the stage drives a hip young man with perfect hair wearing skinny jeans and a deep V neck, and he launches into a series of self-help capsules and inspirational platitudes. The man, a pastor, he claims, speaks about God that only is vague in general terms, but not the Christian God of the Bible. The God that this man is telling his audience about seems to be some kind of magical genie who only functions and whose only function is to satisfy their appetites, and there's absolutely no judgment at all in this God. He is the divinity that sits back passively waiting for his children to arrive on paradise to a paradise after absolute search to enter no matter how they choose to live for Now we skip ahead to the end of the chapter. But let me just tell you, Matt Walsh does a remarkable job in laying waste the rest of what we would think about as Christian society and culture in our nation. So when we come to the end of his hypothetical story, here's what he says. Star holy and gloomily, the heathen walk back to their boats and sail away. They were not able to trust our Christian way of life because they didn't have a Christian way of life here to trust. They were not able to destroy the church because there wasn't much of a church left in America to destroy. They were not able to behead Christians because they really couldn't find any Christians to behead. They unsheathed their swords only to discover that what they had come to kill was dead already. And perhaps maybe Matt's most poignant line in that first chapter is this. They had traveled all the way to persecute the Jews. Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ. Have you really been crucified with Christ? Crucifixion doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? It tells me something suffered, something died, something to be given to it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Who lives for in you? You are Christ. And the life I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Is it really a life of faith or is it a life of self? Are you living for one who loves me and gave himself for me? Let me ask you two questions as we close. Number one, if you weren't a Christian, you just take the name Christian out of your life. Take out church attendance too, okay? Let's just take those two things out. Uh, you're a normal routine. You don't go to church. You're not a Christian. Let me ask you this. What would be different about your life? What would be different if you weren't a Christian and just didn't come to church occasionally? I have to be honest with you here this time. I'm sure there's a lot that would be different. From the everyday ordinary walking away person to this man. When I thought about that question, I said to myself, Chris, there ought to be something more out of it. 
Oh, it's great to sing about God's reckless love, but what about my reckless love for Him? I like staying in my comfort zone. I like my God's comfort zone. That's what God's comfort zone is. The Hebrew poet came to America after the great ministry. He put me on trial. Is there enough evidence in your life conviction of love and But then his child. Would they crucify him? Would they crucify him? Would they kill him? They should. They crucified Christ. If Christ came again to his family, he couldn't do that to you. It's a suffering service. You know what our world will do to him again? They can crucify him again. This world hates Jesus. This world will crucify Christ again if an opportunity. If Christ lived in us, why are we not being crucified? It seems to be. Might I suggest to you that we might be a bunch of walking I'm going to be honest with you, it's a tough pill to swallow. That's hard in my But I'm just looking at that, as I know that you are looking at the TV and reading the pulpit saying, our country's lost its love and hand out there. But the reality is, Mr. Kennedy, if you keep carrying that banner, so Christ will come. If we're unwilling to shake the basket and say, don't you go down that road. You know, you're talking about it leads to hell. Listen, Jesus said that, listen, the way that leads to hell is broad. The way that leads to God is narrow. You say, preacher, that's narrow. Preacher, you're talking about not being tolerant or being accepted. Accepting of, of, of people in our world and, and certain lifestyles in our world. I get it. I understand it. I wish I had a soft, totally feel good Christianity. But, dear friend, every time I pick up the Bible, it tells me something I don't like about me. It, it's like hugging Bob Wyatt. It's not pleasant. It's not comfortable. But it's God's word. And the same question being debated today is the same question debated in the garden. Does God have the right to tell us? what he wants. Does God have the right to sit on the throne and rule? Did Satan whisper in the, in, in the, into the ear of Eve and say, did God really say And God would throw, throw, throw that and throw it in. In the day that you eat of that tree, you die. Think about how simple life was. Isn't it a Bible that the, the, the followers read and the keep and all those different kinds of things that God demanded? They had only one command. Don't eat that tree. Don't eat of that tree. You can have any other tree, anything else. You know what that tree represented? God's right to be 
church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which God has ordained to be born. I'm going to tell you something today. So much so that with Satan's question, God picked that guy. But dear friend, if you put it off, you look at the question, what you then the answer is for you. You can put God off, you can deny it. But one day you will stand before God. He who will say, Well done, come on. But you take the part. If you would ask me this morning, which answer from God I feel is more possible to hear? Because Chris Griffin's life was influenced by the form of the Lord Jesus. Yes, that's merit. Yes, that's hard. But I remind you that rich young ruler who came to Christ. He was a good guy, kept the law, he was faithful. You know, he, he was the perfect church member. Did you know what that means? Lord, where there is no work in our heart, 
We pray God's blessings upon you as you worship with us today. If God has led you to make a decision today for Jesus, we would love to hear about it. We invite you to come to our website, cometothecross.net. Our online decision card will allow you to tell us about the decision that you're making. All decisions, all contacts are kept private and are confidential. However, we would be able to pray for you and perhaps I'd even be able to call you and pray with you about what God has led you to do if you so desire. So fill out the form, let us know, and just know that we love you and God loves you, and we're excited that you're taking this first step for God today.